0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Fashion entrepreneur, visionary, body positive advocate, educator. Just four titles that describe Chanel Armstrong Fowler, my guest today. Chanel is the owner and founder of Haute & Company Bridal Boutique, Chicago's only luxury plus-size bridal shop catering to women sizes 14 to 32. The 6-foot-tall size 16 Chanel opened her boutique in 2013. By the way, the average woman in the United States wears a size 16. Chanel also happens to be the star of the People TV series The Perfect Fit. It follows a dozen curvy women as they search for their perfect wedding gown, while following her motto, style, snatch, and slay. We're getting an explanation later. Before Haute & Company, Chanel was public relations director at Sears Holdings, which owned retail store brands Sears and Kmart. While there, she launched the celebrity lines of singer-songwriters Nicki Minaj and Adam Levine and WWE's John Cena. Before Sears Holdings, Chanel was manager U.S. communications for McDonald's and was instrumental in the national launch of the McCafe brand. She also served as press advance with the Gore-Lieberman presidential campaign. Chanel also teaches social media and digital and PR strategy and fashion PR at Chicago's Columbia College. So let's get to know this woman of many talents. Chanel, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sandy. It is a pleasure to be here.
0: So as you look over your career, are you at all surprised by how eclectic it is? Yes, almost always. You know, it's interesting that when you look at
1: it, it looks almost like a nice kaleidoscope of a person's life. And what I can share with you is that each position, each opportunity built on the last opportunity and always use the one transferable skill that I am famous for, and that is my ability to influence. So whether I'm working in government relations, corporate communications, or now in fashion and in wedding, ultimately what I'm doing is using my ability to influence, which means being an active listener, being compassionate, having empathy for the person across from you, and really getting to a solution. So it's not that strange, but It just used my core skill set that I feel kind of sums up who I am professionally and personally. So that in and of itself is a natural act for you. It is. It's very natural for me. I am one of four daughters. I'm a middle child. So, you know, I've had to negotiate up, down, and (laughs) sideways. So negotiation and influence comes very easy to me. Talk to us about growing up. Are you Chicago born and bred? No, I'm actually raised in Atlanta, Georgia. And my father was an engineer and my um, mom never worked, out, stepmother never worked outside the home. And I was raised by my dad and which was great. But, you know, my dad has a very interesting philosophy when it comes to women and women that are working, which is very, he's a man of his time, as I like to say, not a man before his time. Hmm. And so... Being a man of his time meant that I'm going to take care of my daughters. Um, I'm going to make sure my daughters never need anything. I'm not going to allow my daughters to work. (laughs) I'm not going to allow my daughters to do a lot of things. And then I'm going to release them to the wild of the world (laughs) and think that they're prepared (laughs) to manage some of the day-to-day lives. Like when I was in college, this is the funniest thing ever. I remember being in college my freshman year. I was at Temple University. And I remember being there and seeing someone lying on the street. Like, just lying on the street. I was with a friend. We're walking back, and I said, Oh my God, I think he's sick. You should call somebody. They were like, He's homeless. I'm like, What do you mean? They were like, He's homeless. I said, He should
0: call his mom or his dad. You had no idea what that meant.
1: No idea what that meant. I mean, like, incredibly sheltered, incredibly sheltered. Was that a disadvantage for you? Well, it was and it wasn't. And I will tell you where it wasn't, it's because I was just naturally curious. And being very curious allowed me to have very little boundaries around me, which can be good and bad, where it served as a disadvantage. It just seemed like I, I was a lot more naive in the way of the world. People who had experiences that were fought, like had worked through experiences Like in their early teens, I had just begun to have. So I always felt like I was playing catch up in the real world in some instances.
0: Well, do you think that that changed for you going to a school like Temple University in Philadelphia? For sure. That's why I didn't graduate from
1: Temple (laughs) University because it was too fast. You know, you're, you're coming from a sheltered environment to a massive city. And then this is not a regular city. I mean, Philadelphia is a real, real rough and tumble city, especially where Temple is located. It's in North Philadelphia. So it's not like being located, you know, in Malibu. Yeah. No, you're really coming to a very, very eclectic, but hardcore city. So that lasted about a year. And then I went, transferred to Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And that was much more my speed, where I was able to be successful and do so many great things because it was much more who I was. I was able to, you know, you're in the South. I was already raised in the South. So being back in the South was incredibly um, comforting. We all had same new, the same nuances. And even if you saw people that weren't technically from your area, when you see students that come from New York, you didn't feel so mismatched. You just saw a different way of living quite candidly. It was definitely my comfort zone, especially being so young and, you know, being, I mean, I graduated high school at 17. So being so young, it was definitely my comfort zone.
0: Were you there just doing this on your own or did you have guidance from your family or did you know what you wanted to be when, quote, you grew up?
1: I don't think that I knew what I wanted to be beyond being a lawyer. I mean, I saw LA Law. I wanted to be like Blair Underwood. I wanted to be a lawyer that did all these fancy things. And that's all I knew. So when I went to college in undergrad, you know, you major in administration of justice. You take these courses around the law, around process, around the criminal justice system to prepare you for law school. But the reality of it is I know I had a very romantic version of what going to law school was because I really didn't understand that law school made you a lawyer and lawyers don't look like the ones that are in the (laughs) TV. Right. Right. There's a lot of solitary and a lot of solitude in the industry of reading, writing, researching, and very little bit of the sexy in the courtroom. And plus, as I started to come into my own as a student leader, you know, it was really clear advocacy was one of my stronger suits because I could influence people. And back then, you didn't have a name for it, you just knew that you could do things. And I felt like this would be something great. So when I got, I applied to George Washington University and I I was like for grad school. And I was like, got accepted. I was super excited, a little bit nervous because keep in mind, I wasn't used to this. I was been in the South again. Now I'm going back to the city, want to DC this time, which Mm is, you know, the capital of everything is where everybody who is somebody go to become somebody
0: bigger. Your naivete, that didn't work against you,
1: did it? no i know it didn't it, it you know it's always interesting and now um because i am so naturally curious right one of the things that i have to be very careful with my curiosity as i've gotten older is that because i am very very like willing to look out of the box you know you can get shiny object syndrome where you can get focused on everything outside of the box however you still have some major deliverables and some um some major you know, operational things to be able to handle in your own company and you can get a little derail. So one of the things, even being curious is how do I, I'm learning to balance that curiosity without stifling it, you know, trying to let it use for my advantage. So I just don't have all these projects that um, go by the wayside because and Co. is my third company. And the funniest thing is I would talk with colleagues and friends, you know, had all these ideas for companies and they would ask, well, what happened with this? When I said, oh, I did the financials and it just didn't work. You know, I would take a plan all the way to the end to the financials and couldn't see how I could make it financially strong. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, "Okay, that's it. We've done what we could do. They're like, you're not going to try. I'm like, no, the numbers speak for themselves. You know, so I would try another company. I would, you know, go through the exercise of doing that. And when I did it with Oaten Co.,
0: it was one of the ones that said, Okay, stop. I think we can do this. Before you opened your own business, you know, you worked for other people, as I mentioned, you know, and you did PR. And so that was how you? I'm guessing honed your skills, correct? For well, sure. Yeah, I mean that's what gave you a the street cred and the foundation for you to open up, like you said, three businesses or start three businesses. I had one. I had one
1: before I came to um, McDonald's, and I would tell you McDonald's because McDonald's is literally a business filled with entrepreneurs, from the franchisees to the suppliers. You know, everybody's an entrepreneur, so you get to see everything from different perspectives to serve the same company, the same customer. So when you're looking at getting a new sausage Griddle, and you're visiting mm-hmm. the pork supplier, you're actually visiting someone who has a business. And then when you're talking to franchisees about the rollout of the Griddle sandwich, you're talking to someone else who has a business. So it really is you're surrounded by entrepreneurs all the time. And that was the best training ground I had for entrepreneurship and understanding P&L, understanding cash flow, understanding, you know, fixed and variable costs. Those came from working at McDonald's. Where I honed my retail skill set is at Sears Holdings. It was working with people like um all the not necessarily the um, the merchants, but the marketers, and sometimes the merchants.
0: What was this like for you to be a woman of color? Were you kind of an anomaly where you worked, be it Sears Holdings or McDonald's?
1: Let's be very candid. One of the biggest reasons I started my own business, it wasn't because the opportunities weren't available to me in corporate America. It was just that all the opportunities weren't available to me. And... I could see definitely when I was at McDonald's that there was a culture that communicated that women could do so much.
0: Meaning a lot so much or just limited so much? Limited so much. Okay.
1: If you were a woman, especially a black woman, this is what you should be and do. You can't operate outside of this box. And because I've already operated outside the box, I come from a different experience. I would find myself hitting the ceiling. Yes. And I remember one specific incident when I knew it was time to go. And the funny thing is, I would tell you, I have found my best friends by working at McDonald's, mostly half the people that were at my wedding (laughs) were people I worked with at McDonald's and or Sears or came from college. So, Uh you know, those two jobs were the most impactful in my career, right? That got me, that, that I got like long lasting relationships with. I would tell you, I remember this one instance that I will never, ever forget. I applied for a position in what they call a field position to work for one of the division presidents. At McDonald's, I went out to interview and they wanted someone that was, you know, because it was in California, they wanted someone who would be able to work with local legislators, you know, just a whole plethora of things. That I had done. I mean, I had already, you know, worked at McDonald's. I knew the system. I worked at incredibly great relationships with franchisees. Um, And I come from government relations and I had strong relationships by understanding state and local government. I mean, I had worked for the governor of Virginia fresh out of of undergrad. So clearly understood state and local government. And I had worked on a federal campaign and worked for the vice president of the United States. So it was, surprising out of all of that. And not to mention working at being a government, in government relations in DC and had an advanced degree, passed over for a pers- to a person who was a white male who had six years of experience from, a, a small a- from an agency. And what happened to you? What'd you think? I was livid. And I said out loud that I don't understand how this could happen. And what, I, what was shared with me when I knew it, it was a wrap, is, well, I don't know if they felt like you were a good fit. And I said, good fit is a very, very nuanced role to say, we don't want you in this role, in this job. And all we can say is it's not a good fit. And that to me changed how I looked at the company. It didn't change how I looked at people I knew, but it changed how I looked at the company. And I was not going to do this. I was not going to stay at the company any longer. And I had, was getting recruited anyway by other companies. And I got a recruiter call me about from Sears Holdings. And I really did want to kind of break out and go into the retail side anyway. Um, and that was a good opportunity. And Sears is not, I can remember, I am not joking with you, Sandy. I can remember sitting in a Sears Holding meeting and they wanted to debate the use of the N word using the ER or the A. Oh my God. And I said, well, this conversation is not going to happen. Not with me. <laughs> I'm just, there's, I, I don't want to have this conversation. I'm not going to have this conversation. There are special places and nuances, quite candidly, when you work in corporate America and you're a, a woman of color. And if you are a woman of color that is semi-woke, meaning you understand the unique intersection between sexism and racism and the unique barriers and obstacle that they can create for you then you begin to look at what does my life look like in the organization? And what will my life look like outside of the organization?
0: Well, it sounds like you just knew, in spite of all of this crap that you had to go through, that you were going to forge ahead. And I'd like to forge ahead with you in terms of Oat & Company Bridal Boutique. Why did you open this business? I
1: did want to go back on my own. I enjoyed entrepreneurship. I also wanted to be not, I wanted to be in a scenario that I could create my own everything. And at that time I had gotten engaged to my lovely husband, Sean, and he was, his, he's, he's divorced. He was married previously and he's divorced. And his daughter is young and she lives here in Chicago. So he had said to me, it would be hard for him to move away from his daughter during, like during these years when she was still young. Once she went away to college, it would be easier. So one of the things that I said to him was that if I have to stay in Chicagoland and stay in Chicago, because I was getting, you know, headhunters were calling me about roles outside of the state. And I said that I would have to create my own reality. And I saw what was available in some of the organizations in Chicago, but I wanted to do my own thing. And I really felt like taking on this research about building this plus size boutique. And Kirby Boutique in Chicago would be great for me, you know, professionally, you know, emotionally, creatively. It could really propel me to the next level.
0: Creating this company had to be very personal for you. You weren't just opening up any dress shop. You had a specific target audience. Believe it or not, it
1: wasn't personal in a way of size, because I'm going to share something with you. It was personal in the way the way people are women are treated. Period. And I was determined to build a company that women that were treated on the inside and the outside with a level of respect and dignity that showed that they were valued. So, as a woman of color, sometimes when you go into retailers, they can be very dismissive, disrespectful, and not really looking at you as a value to their organization. They look at you in some cases the opposite way where they either follow you around or make slide comments like, oh, that costs a lot. Are you sure? I don't know if we have it in your size, you know, things Mm -hmm. like that. So for me, it was less about the size, but wanting to work and know that I could create an experience for women inside and outside the company, especially coming from where I came from, that women could find peace and work hard and be compensated and be and can be taken care of inside as staff and outside you could walk in as soon as you saw it, walk through the door you knew that you were going to be valued, heard and respected and that you didn't have to worry about anything else. We weren't going to chastise you about your money. We weren't going to demean you about your size. We weren't going to, you know, send,
0: you know, subtle, slide remarks about your vision. We just weren't going to do that. So you were going to treat the women who walked into your store as human beings.
1: Correct, as I would want to be treated. You know, it's so interesting. We were having this conversation with a group of retailers around um, a woman that came in to another store. I'm not in the area. She's a, brid- a bridal store. And the woman of color, um, the, apparently the way the sales associate said that, oh, we don't have that. We don't sell that off the rack or whatever she said and recommended that she go to another store, it offended the woman. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a review about it. And everyone who was on this thread in this group was saying, like, how unfair that was. I don't think that was racist. I don't think it was this. And I explained to people if you want to be in the retail or if you want to be an owner, you have to have a greater level of sensitivity around what your customers are experiencing. I work exclusively with curvy customers, women who literally, if you would hear some of the stories, right, that would go to another boutique, one woman said, Told, told the bride, you have time to lose that weight before your wedding. Or th- it doesn't really go up that size. We might be able to put some panels in the side to make it work, but we don't know for sure.
0: So the, a woman of a certain size comes into the store and is just completely cut down. Cut down, dismissed. You know, what I was sharing with my group is like,
1: if there are people of color, know that they're coming in with a different sensitivity around this whole retail and shopping experience. If you want to see it play out, watch it at Starbucks, okay? So we're going to come into the scenario with a different positioning, hoping that we will be served fairly, not expecting to be served fairly. So when I see women that come to our shop, they are hoping, but we are walking in praying that they're expecting so before they even land, before they open the door, it's like good morning, you know, bright eyes and chipper. You know, those small nuances of eye contact and smiling. It seems so simple, Sandy, but you would be surprised how much of that is overlooked period in life and in our world today. It's as if that everyone has a monetary value and until I know what it is, I'm not going to treat you with any Bit of consideration, until I know what you could do for me and my business
0: so talk to me about this motto that you came up with of style snatch and sleigh.
1: you know, I were a team that was work at the time, and they were young millennials, and they're pretty funny when they're together and you know when they're working um, or not taking selfies all day long. so <laughs> one of the best things about we work together, we have a very light atmosphere, and we were saying one day that in the back, we're like, we're going to style and, and, you know, make sure you pick her out the right dress. That's right. Style and snatch her together. Make sure that waist is pulled in tight. Make sure those boobs are sitting up high. Make sure those hips are swaying the right way. Snatch her to death. (laughs) <laughs> and then, you know, so she can slay all the way down that aisle on her big day. And we put that on the back on our board as our, you know, as our credo, as our, you know, something to aspire to. And it was actually a lot of fun. We're like, she style snatched and slayed. <laughs> and then one of our um, bride's moms was in our employee break area. Don't ask me why she was back there. I have no idea. And she said, what is style snatch slay? and we explained it to her laugh you know jokingly and she goes oh and good day and i was and we all fell out laughing and at the end of the day we would always say and good day ladies so <laughs> it really is the way we with a lot of fun approach um the way that we do our business but at the end of the day it really is based in business number one is having the best selection of gowns and making sure that we can be able to provide styles and fits and silhouettes that are on trend that are you know Not just complementary to body types, that are just what's in the marketplace. We're not looking to have moo-moos with embellishment. You know, we're looking to have, if you want a ball gown, we're going to bust out the best ball gown ever. You know, Mm -hmm. if you want a a dress that is a trumpet silhouette with as much embellishment that lights up the night, we're going to get that for you. Style is having the best selection of gowns. That snatch is ensuring that we work with you and our team to make sure that gown fits perfectly alterations. It fits perfectly. That comes in with the snatch. And the slay is just ensuring that on your big day that we've done everything we could and that we're responsible for to get you to your number one position to go down that aisle.
0: Do you find it a surprise that your store is highlighted because your clientele is not the typical sexy petite looking bride that they're big curvy women? Does that annoy you that that's what you have to be known for? No, the reason why it
1: doesn't annoy me is because when we work with um, Authentic Entertainment that produces the show and People Magazine that distributes it.
0: Wait, let's talk about that first. Explain that how that came about—the perfect fit. It was created by Authentic
1: Entertainment and I going through. They contacted me when I first opened and asked me about. I didn't even know who they were, so I thought it was like some bogus, uh, you know, production company until I researched them online and realized. Wow. So you do. So you are big time. Okay. So we actually talked a lot of versions of a show, but I wanted to be comfortable that, we, you know, my brides and my business wasn't going to be a punchline and that it wasn't going to be performed or positioned, I should say, not performed, but positioned as, ooh, look at these quote unquote larger women. Oh, they got married. Oh, they have clothes. Oh, look at that. Isn't that yeah. anomaly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, mm-hmm. I, was, I didn't want that, right? And so I wanted to show the fashions that were available. Every bride has a story. And every bride, whether you're size 2 or 32, wants to look her best on her day. And what I was wanting to do is what Authentic wanted to do is have a show that showed all of that. And the fact that we're curvy is even better because the marketplace is starting to understand slowly that all women are not a size 10 or 6. And that Mm -hmm. when you're looking at purchasing, whether it's your wedding gown or a suit for a job interview or something that you want to wear to a black tie event, that these women are part of that conversation. And somewhere along the line, In fashion, particularly, women of a certain size got excluded and got excluded with jokes and with pride, like, oh, we don't do that. We don't, we don't, we don't do that for those women. And that was okay. And that was okay. But as the woman's body in the US began to evolve, then we saw that there weren't anything available to her. High-end designers weren't available to her. Midpoint designers weren't available to her. And so when you look at the show, what it shows is that, that these women, all women, want the same thing on their big day. Beauty comes in different sizes, ethnicities, and colors, period. And if you don't understand that, then let us help you see that. If you don't want to believe your lying eyes, then don't believe your lying eyes, but let us right. show you how this works and that it's not you know, just off to the side where women are just, you know, oh, I didn't know they got married. Oh, they have boyfriends. Oh, I mean, just the most ridiculous things that people say which blows my mind. So you have to be very clear and understand the market you serve and who you serve. So if you're a sexy slot, if you're going to be a sexy shop, you know, where you don't do a lot of the low ba- the low back dresses, the real slinky dresses, well you know looking at that shop they're not going to cater to curvy. are just not and that's okay, because there are women who want that look. You know, I often tell my brides, if she wants to go that low on the back, I'm like, do you want your mother-in-law to like you after the <laughs> wedding? Okay. You know? Yeah, right. It's serving the market and understanding who's in your market and what can be served. And so everyone can't serve everyone. You know, if you look at a Bloomingdale's, Bloomingdale's does not serve the target customer.
0: I have to assume, Chanel, that when you look back at your career and where you are, you must just get the greatest feeling.
1: I do. I do at times. But I want to say one of the things that happens with a person like myself that's naturally curious, high performer, is that you feel sometimes that you haven't accomplished a lot. So there are moments I look at my career and I'm like, have I really done a lot? Am I? Even now, I don't know what I'm searching for, but I don't feel I've got there yet.
0: And I don't know if I ever will. So the bottom line to Chanel is don't mess with Chanel. Exactly. Well, that's a perfect way to end that, you know, what a strong belief in who you are. And I think that's just wonderful and very empowering. And Chanel Armstrong Fowler, I'm really glad that I got to meet and have a conversation with you. I'm sorry that I'm not a bride. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much, Chanel, and much more continued success in all that you do. I definitely appreciate it. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You
1: make the angels in celebration of the